You're listening to Earshot from WXXI News. I'm Veronica Volk. This week, local Haudenosaunee people are seeking justice for thousands of indigenous children who were forced into boarding schools. The intent was to extinguish us and destroy whatever sense of self-worth we had. And for women under 40, getting a breast cancer diagnosis and the proper treatment can be challenging. But then in the back of my mind, something was like, you you have to go, you have to do this for yourself. Plus, we'll hear from City Magazine's David Andrietta about a pool table with ties to the civil rights movement. This allows people to understand how he made a connection with people through the use of a very common game. All that from your local news podcast, Earshot. A few weeks ago, hundreds of children's remains were found in a mass grave in Canada. All of them had been students of a boarding school there, one specifically for indigenous children. This kind of school was not uncommon in the 20th century. In fact, there were hundreds more like it, spread out across Canada and the U.S., including right here in New York. And they existed to force these children to assimilate to white culture. Now, indigenous communities are calling for further investigations into similar school sites and want help recovering what was lost there. WXXI's Noelle Evans has this story. Doug George's Aquasusney Mohawk name is Canantio. It means handsome pine tree. The Aquasusney are part of the Haudenosaunee, whose communities span across the U.S.-Canada border along New York State. Canantio says in 1966, when he was 11 years old, police took him from his family in their reservation near Ottawa and placed him in a residential school hundreds of miles away. On the reservation, given enormous personal freedom in the school that did not exist. Residential schools, or American Indian boarding schools, date back to the 1870s. Military Captain Richard Pratt founded the first one. It was a way to, in Pratt's words, kill the Indian to save the man. It's a terrible thing to walk around believing that uh, you're not not truly a human being, a complete human being. Many students sent to these schools went missing. Last month, 215 children's remains were discovered in British Columbia at one of nearly 500 boarding schools in Canada and the U.S. The discovery has sparked renewed calls for justice from Indigenous communities. It's high time that this American country recognizes the great value and resource in its indigenous populations and celebrates and promotes and supports. That's Michael Galbin. He's a curator at the Seneca Art and Culture Center at Ganondigan. His grandmother was a residential school survivor. Last year, Democrats in the U.S. Senate introduced a bill that would create a Truth and Healing Commission. The commission would investigate and document past injustices of what they call the federal government's cultural genocide. The bill has not progressed in any fashion. Galbin says undoing this magnitude of injustice would take multiple long-term solutions, starting with restorative policies. It would involve, you know, language restoration. It would involve uh, environmental restorations. Um, It would involve you know, in some cases, restoring people to their original homelands. It would also mean recording oral histories of survivors' experiences. 
every day we're losing the stories from the survivors as they age out, you know, and pass away. At the Mohawk Institute in Brantford, Ontario, Kenantio says students were deprived of food and beaten for speaking their native language. At night, he says, they were sexually abused. The intent was to extinguish us as, as Aboriginal people and destroy whatever sense of self-worth we had. And uh, I could say that they succeeded to a large degree. When he managed to escape back to the reservation, he was angry. He wanted to know, how could the chiefs have let this happen? Our Mohawk leaders who had a sacred duty to protect children, which is fundamental to any human society, they didn't do it. He wants Native leadership to issue a formal apology. So far, he says the remaining Mohawk survivors have not received that acknowledgement. Mohawk Grand Chief Abram Benedict says it's a reasonable request, though he says back when this was happening, those families and chiefs were also held hostage by Canadian and U.S. governments. If there was ever, whether it be by leadership or by families, uh, any uh, action to stop or, you know, take their children, they were obviously uh, prosecuted and arrested. Not only that, Benedict says that some families who were in dire situations thought they were doing the best for their children by sending them to a boarding school. More than 50 years later, Kenantio still wishes he could confront the school staff responsible for the brutal treatment and abuse, and the authorities who tore families apart. Something deep and wonderful has been lost, and that's the terror of this thing. Noelle Evans is a reporter for WXXI News. Martin Luther King Jr., he's perhaps the most well-known figure of the civil rights movement. You know the speeches. Because I've been to the mountaintop. The marches. I have a dream. But there's something you might not know about him. An artifact from King's past recently surfaced right here in Rochester, and it sheds a little more light on how he spread his message and related to people. City Magazine's David Andrietta brings us this story. Before he led the Montgomery bus boycott or the March on Washington, Martin Luther King Jr. honed his passion for social justice around a pool table in the basement of a college dormitory. That's right, Martin Luther King, pastor, activist, pool shark. Now that same pool table sits on the second floor of a civil rights lawyer's office right here in Rochester. I mean, I, I do get goosebumps when I play on the table or touch the table. That's Van White, who is perhaps best known as president of the Rochester Board of Education. White is also a collector of artifacts of the civil rights movement, and he's turned his law office into a museum called the Center for the Study of Civil and Human Rights Law. The pool table traced to King is the latest item added to his collection. As the story goes, King was introduced to billiards on a pool table that sat in a basement of Crozier Theological Seminary in southeastern Pennsylvania, where he was a student from 1948 to 1951. 94-year-old James Bashai used to play with him and was one of several people who authenticated the table. He was able to bring the tool table as a practical example of competition, which should be based on equality rather than race, color, or religion. 
King was often documented using the game of pool to connect with people and spread his message of civil rights. In 1962, a desegregation campaign in Albany, Georgia, turned violent. King pledged on television to go to the pool rooms to urge people to remain peaceful. We abhor violence so much that when it occurs in the ranks of the Negro community, we assume part of the responsibility for it. This afternoon, I will go to the pool rooms and the taverns, urging them to follow nonviolence and doing some teaching. When Crozier closed and merged with Colgate-Rochester Divinity School in 1970, a professor named Theodore Whedon relocated to Rochester, and he took the pool table with him, where he kept it for the next 50 years. His son, Brian Whedon, remembers it well in his Brighton childhood home. And any time we had friends over, it was a known thing as a little kid that, oh, this is King's table, he played on this. <laughs> I mean, that's what I would tell people. It was just like it was normal, like, you know, that's Grandma's tea kettle and this is King's table. One of those childhood friends was Van White. When Whedon could no longer keep the table, he gifted it to White and his Center for the Study of Civil and Human Rights Law. The pool table currently sits in a room that is an homage to King and his work. You hear about the I Have a Dream speech, you, you hear about I've been to the mountaintop, but rarely do you hear of the hustle that he engaged in to get people involved in the movement when he wasn't sitting in a church. And so this, this allows people to understand how he made a connection with people through the use of a very common game. And it also lets you see Dr. King in a sort of a different way. David Andrietta is the editor of City Magazine. To read more about the King Pool Table, check out their website, rockcitynews.org. Our last story today is one that hits close to home here at WXXI. Recently, one of our colleagues was diagnosed with breast cancer. Now, most breast cancer cases affect women who are 50 or older. That's according to the CDC. But every year, thousands of younger women are also being diagnosed. And part of their treatment plan includes having to be strong advocates for themselves. WXXI's Raquel Steven has this story. All right, I'm going to scan your bracelet. All right, we have Megan, M-A-C-K. Megan Mack is a producer at WXXI News. She's in the doctor's office receiving her weekly chemotherapy. And today she is 1.74, so she's all good. Mac says she handles chemo like she would a news meeting. I'd show up here and every Wednesday is another meeting. I have chemo Wednesday, just like I have the news meeting every day. It's been only a few months since Mac discovered a lump in her breast. She says her doctor initially told her not to worry about it. And I trusted her. And I thought, if you say it's benign, it's benign. Mac is 36, and she never had a mammogram before. She's not alone. For women under 40, insurance doesn't cover yearly screenings for breast cancer, and it can be hard for younger women to advocate for themselves. Mac's doctor didn't seem overly concerned, but Mac decided to trust her instincts. But then in the back of my mind, something was like, you, you have to go, you have to do this for yourself. After two mammograms and an ultrasound, Mac was diagnosed with breast cancer. Dr. Avis O'Connell is the head of breast imaging and radiology at URMC. She says most breast lumps in young women are not going to be cancerous. She says nationwide, only 5% of women diagnosed with breast cancer are younger than 40. 
But she says young women need to be vocal if they think there's a problem. I think if somebody goes to their doctor and says, this is new, this is different, you know, I demand an ultrasound. I think women have to be their own advocates. Alexis Corbett says not every doctor is as proactive as O'Connell. I do know of several women whose physicians did not worry about it. Corbett is one of the leaders of Young Survival Coalition, an advocacy group for women under 40 who have been diagnosed with breast cancer. She says patients shouldn't be intimidated by their doctors and need to know they can challenge them. You don't understand ask because you only have one body and you have to protect yourself and somebody's laziness can cost you your life or quality of life. Oncologist Dr. Carla Foxen says a key part of her treatment is paying attention to her patients. Listen to your patients because they know their bodies, they know what they need. Foxen of URMC says some patients do challenge her recommendations, but she respects their concerns and has no problem recommending a second opinion. If the patient says this doesn't feel right, then I'll look further to try to figure out. And if and if I don't know, and I, I, I sometimes don't know, I usually send them to other specialists to have them checked out as well. Foxen says getting the patient involved in the decision making is the best way to treat them. As for Mac, she says it's much easier to make informed decisions about her treatment now that she has been advocating for herself. She encourages other women to find that confidence within. You know your body better than anybody. And so you trust yourself, trust your gut. Raquel Steven is a health reporter for WXXI News. You've been listening to Earshot from WXXI News. And we want to know, what are the stories you're thinking about? What are you talking about in your community? Drop us a line at earshot at WXXI.org. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast to keep up to date on local news. Find even more at our website, WXXINews.org. Music this week from Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. I'm Veronica Volk. Thanks for listening. This program is a production of member-supported WXXI Public Broadcasting, Rochester, New York.